You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We're in a series called Life's Healing Choices in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. By the way, if you have your Bible, feel free to open to Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at verse 8 today among others. But as uh, you're opening to that, we've been in the series called Life's Healing Choices, and the first choice was the reality choice. And it basically is, uh, comes from Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the idea behind it is that I'm powerless to uh, control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and my life is unmanageable. Like, I just, basically, if we were to sum it up, it would say, I can't. That's the first admission, if you will, right? I can't. My life is unmanageable. I can't contain, you know, the, uh, you know, my tendency to do the wrong thing. My life is unmanageable. So we go, God, I can't. The second choice is God can. That's the hope choice. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Where does that comfort come from? It comes from God. And it, the statement there is, I earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me change. So it's, I can't, but... God can. And the third choice we looked at last week, which is the commitment choice, is let him. Let him. I can't. God can. Let's let him. And we looked at the verse, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And of course, the word blessed means happy. How do we experience wholeness in our life? How do we experience happiness in our life? And the statement we use for the commitment choice is, I consciously choose to commit all my life and my will to Christ's care and control. And that's what we do. It's the commitment choice. So we basically say, I can't, God can, and I've got to let him. But how many of you have ever heard that statement that says, uh, just let go and let God? Have you ever heard that statement, right? Okay, it's kind of a little pithy statement. Uh, sometimes I think it's ridiculous because I go, how? Okay, that's a good statement. Hey, man, just let go. Just, you know, it almost sounds like chill out, right? Just, hey, don't, don't stress about it. That's almost what it sounds like. But the real thing we have to ask is how? If I can't, but God can, and I need to let him, how do I actually let him? How does that happen? What does that mean? How can I let God make the changes in my life that he wants to make in my life? That's probably uh, the biggest choice. In fact, this choice we talk about today among the eight life's healing choices is probably the hardest choice, and it's the house cleaning choice. It's looking at our lives, examining ourselves, and taking a moral inventory, if you will, of our life and being honest with ourselves and others. And, and uh, we basically have to realize that nobody's perfect. We are all in the same boat. There's this great verse, it's uh, Romans 3.23. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's a pastor who was preaching on this passage one time. He said basically this. He said, God knows all of your sins, and he's seen all of your fallen shorts. He probably didn't mean it like that, but it's true, right? God has seen all of our sins, and he's seen all the ways you and I have fallen short. And he just knows that we are lacking. We're all in the same boat. And so we walk into today the house cleaning choice. Let me just say as we are walking into this day, I, I believe that we are in a building project as a church. I believe that phase three, if you will, is what God is doing right now in us. He's building the people. It has nothing to do with the facility, has nothing to do with people that right now God is rebuilding us. He's causing you and I to be more authentic. He's causing you and I to be real. He's causing you and I to take a, an inward look at our lives and say, how can God take my mess and make a message out of it? How can God work and how can I participate with the work that God's already doing in me? I think there's a building project that's going on right now, and I feel like it's us as a church. And he is just really deepening us and growing us as a church, and we want to participate with what he's already doing. So we come to the fourth choice, and this is part of the building project, if you will. It's the house cleaning choice. Matthew 5, 8, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And it means this, I openly examine and confess my faults to myself and to God and to someone I trust. So I'm going to openly confess my faults to myself and to God and to someone I trust. And you'd say, well, okay, admit something to myself. Okay, no problem. Uh, admit my faults to God. Well, pff, he already sees it. It's not like he doesn't know. I mean, he already knows what's going on. No problem there, I guess. 
but admit my faults and my hurts and habits and hangups to somebody else? Some of you are like, no way. Well, I just want you to relax for a minute. We're not trying to make your life a scandal uh, here this morning in church. We're not trying to do an open mic and have people, you know, come up and confess a bunch of things. Uh, we basically are not asking you to bear your soul for all the world to see. We are asking you to be honest. To be honest about what's going on in you. To be honest about your hurts, your habits, your hang-up. To be honest with yourself, be honest with him, and be honest with some other people around us. Why? Because it, freedom is impossible without honesty. That's the way it works. Freedom is impossible without honesty. Truth is the cost of freedom. You want to be free? You got to be truthful. Truth is what it's going to cost you in order to be free. But here's the beautiful thing. Freedom is the reward of truth. Once you've been truthful, freedom is that reward. So there's a cost, but it also becomes the reward. If we want to be free from all the stuff that we've been carrying around, it begins with being honest with ourselves and with God and the people around us. So my purpose this weekend is to get you and I, to get us to have hope and courage and to take this step to get unstuck. Because some of us wouldn't like to admit that we're stuck, but we are. And my hope this weekend is that you would take courage that you would take action to get unstuck. I want you to know how deeply God loves you so much. And when the issue of honesty comes up, man, we just get scared, right? We want to put a mask on. We want to hide. We want to protect. We think to ourselves, I don't want to go here. I don't want to get into this. I don't want to go to those places that are super uncomfortable for me. I just don't want to do it. And, and maybe you and I, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but maybe you and I are like the author of Mary Poppins, who wants to protect Mr. Banks. That you and I are saying, I don't want to go there because that's a painful place. I don't want to expose and throw the family secrets. I don't want to take that stuff out and project it elsewhere. And it takes courage. See, Jesus didn't say, happy are the religious in heart. It's happy are the pure in heart. On the inside, there's a purity of heart on the inside. Some of the most unhappy, sad-faced people I know are religious people. You know the people I'm talking about? Like, they're not happy until everyone is just as miserable as they are, right? They're so super uptight. They're so super unhappy. They, they almost have that, like, downward frown, you know, thing. it's almost like a dog. Dog smiles go down, you know? So, like, it's almost like they're just unhappy, and, like, they are so unhappy with life and everything else, and they just complain about things, and they expect everybody to subscribe to doing exactly the same things that they're doing, that they're not going to fully be happy until everyone else is as miserable as they are, which means they'll never be happy. And Jesus said, not happy are the religious in heart. In fact, Jesus had most of his problems with religious people. They were people who on the outside looked great. And he, Jesus said, on the inside, in your heart, on the outside, you're projecting to all these people a sham. Because on the inside, your heart is full of dead men's bones. Could you imagine if your bones right now died on the inside? It'd take a little bit, but you'd die pretty quick. Your flesh would because you're not producing marrow anymore. So on the outside, Jesus is saying, you look like you're walking, but you're the walking dead. You're full of dead men's bones. And it was religious people who actually had Jesus crucified. Jesus did not say happy are the religious. He said happy are the pure in heart. See, that's what the Christian life is all about. See, some people think the Christian life is about don't, no, 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 don't, 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 like, you know, all these no, but that's not the reality. Christian life is not about don't, Christian life is about do, participate with God. It's not about can't, it's about can, you can experience freedom. It's not about no, it's about yes, saying yes to God, yes to the kind of life that is ultimately fulfilling, that gives us the deep wholeness that we want on the inside. That's what the Christian life is about. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I've come in order that you might have life, life in all its fullness. Not life in partial fullness. He's saying, listen, I'm bringing you to life, but I want you to experience all of life. Not that you might have religion, but that you might have life. So Jesus doesn't want me to be religious. He wants me to be real. He wants you and I to be real. Man, how freeing is it when you and I are actually honest with God, we get beyond our pride, we get beyond our objections, and we, we actually get by ourselves and we actually have an honest conversation. God, 
I just need to talk to you openly, and I've been running away because I've been ashamed, or I've been hiding behind a mask, or I've been putting on a display for other people, and that's not what's really going on. There's a freedom in honesty. He wants us to be real. Why? Because he realizes that happy are those who are pure in heart, not the religious in heart. So Jesus has a friend named Lazarus, and uh, Jesus uh, loves this family. It's a brother and two sisters, and, and uh, Lazarus gets sick, and the ladies, the sisters put out word to Jesus, Jesus, come here. Your friend Lazarus is sick, and you need to come heal him, and Jesus delays. He, he, do, he, can't, he doesn't get there in time, and so he's not that far away, by the way. He just doesn't get there in time, and in the course of time, Lazarus dies. Well, Jesus then shows up uh, four days later, and the, the sisters are grieved. If only you had been here, God, you could have saved our brother from dying, and he sees them weeping and grieving, and he begins to cry himself just in grief because his brother is gone. He says, well, let's go out to the tomb, and so they go over, if you will, to the graveside, and, and at that point, it's, you know, a rock in front of the tomb, and he says, hey, roll the stone away, and the people are like, Lord, don't do that, man. It's like, he's been in there like four days, and it's been hot out here, and he's probably ripe, and it's going to be stinky, and so they literally said, you know, in the King James, oh, Lord, he stinketh, you know, uh, I don't know what that's all about, but that's what it said. But, you know, they're saying, listen, not only we're going to have a worse experience today in our grief if we have to smell it too. That's what they're saying, right? So they basically go, don't, don't do it. They find, Jesus convinced them, roll the stone away. And this is what happens in John 11, verse 43. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. I want you to picture that for a minute. He's in there. He's bound up almost a little bit like mummified. He's a little bit mummified, and he's got a cloth over, like a you know, head covering over his head. And Jesus says, come out. And he comes. I don't know if he was shuffling or hopping or what, but he can't see. Picture it for a minute. He can't see. His hands are bound. His feet are bound. He's all tied up. He comes hopping out of the grave. And I want you to catch the significance of what just happened. The fact that this happened means that nothing is stronger than the life-giving power of Jesus. He was dead. And Jesus brought him to life. And that means that the sins that wrap you and I up, that entangle us, nothing is stronger than the life-giving power of Jesus. Sins that trip you up as you try to follow Jesus, nothing is stronger than the life-giving power of Jesus. Hurts and habits and hang-ups that keep you and I from being honest, nothing is stronger than the life-giving power of Jesus. You've come to Christ, many of you. You've given your life to Christ. You've taken that commitment step we talked about last week. You've given your life to Jesus, but you would look at your life and you would say, you know what, there are still things that trip us up as we try to follow Jesus. It's you know, old ways of thinking, old behavioral patterns, addictions we're still carrying, false beliefs that we, we just have bought into. And there are masks that we put on, like a head covering, and we try to hide behind it because we just don't want people to see the real us. Jesus says, listen, I not only want to bring you from death to life, but I want you to be freed up. Jesus didn't just say, Lazarus, come forth. Have a great time, rest of your life till you die again, right? He didn't say that and walk away. What does he do? He wants to bring Lazarus into freedom like he wants to bring you and I from death to life and now into freedom. He wants to make you and I freeze. It's not good enough just to go from death to life. Now I want you to experience deep wholeness and deep holiness that as I begin to build and work inside of you, if you'll participate with me, I want to let you know that happy are those who have a pure heart because they'll see God in their lives. Do you want to see God? So what does he say? Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He comes hopping out. What does Jesus then say? He said to them, well, who are they? There's the disciples, the, the relatives, the other people who are right around who are followers of Christ. He, Jesus didn't come up and start unwrapping him. He said to them, you, you go loose him. You go help unbind him. You go help unwrap your friend. 
Because Jesus doesn't just want to bring us to life. He wants to bring us into freedom. And that's why God uses other people in our lives. We think we come to Christ and now this thing is it's an American idea. Okay, God, it's just personal. It's between you and me and just, all right. And God's going, uh-uh. I'm calling other people to help unbind you and take off your death clothes and loose you and help you walk in freedom. I don't want you just to come to life. I want you to be unbound and experience life to the fullness. Jesus says, loosen him. He didn't say, then wrap him back up in a bunch of religiosity. Jesus said, loose him. I want to make you free. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's not to bind us up and to restrict us. It's not no, 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 don't, don't, don't. It's saying, I want to make you free. Secondly, in John 8.36, if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Why? Happy are the pure in heart. Here's an interesting thought, though. You and I, we cannot make our own heart pure. We can try to clean up the outside. We could try to put on a good show, but you can't make your own heart pure. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't pay for your soul. You can't get in there and cleanse your soul. You can't. You can't do it. You can't just say, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to behave myself. Then by cleaning up the outside, I'll somehow get a pure heart on the inside. Good behavior will not purify your heart. But listen, if God has purified your heart, good behavior is going to leak out of what's already happened on the inside. God's going to begin to birth good behavior because he did something on the inside. It's not get good enough and start going to church and behave yourself and try not to do bad stuff. It's let me come in and clean you. And when you have a pure heart, good behavior is going to start to leak its way out, just like our hurts and our habits and hangups, the things that we have bound up and keep us bound up, that we hold on and we put the mask on and this, that stuff leaks, right? People close to us start to see it and they know it. And sometimes they say, man, that stuff stinks. Let's come alongside you and help free you up. Repentance doesn't earn forgiveness. I think sometimes you have a belief in Christ and you know you've sinned and now you go, okay, God, I'm going to repent. You try to be like, I'm going to repent and make myself as sorry as I can be and then maybe you'll look at me, God, and you'll pity me and then it will kind of like, then I'll get your forgiveness. And that's not how it works. Repentance doesn't earn forgiveness. Repentance is what we do over and over and over and run back to God because our forgiveness has already been paid for by Jesus. So what happens? It's Jesus' followers who repent it's those who say, God, because of what you've already done, I'm going to run back to you when I've been in sin because I can't make my own heart pure. You've got to do that. And the good work you've begun in me, you've got to carry it on till the day of completion. Romans 5, 8, Jesus, or Paul says of Christ, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you and I to clean up our act. It happened before you and I were born. God said, basically, when you were my enemy, I died for you. He wants us to surrender to him. He didn't say clean yourself up and get good enough first and then, then we're good to go. He says, listen, you're, you're in enmity against me right now. You are against me right now. Your whole life and your background, your behavior and the secrets you're holding on to, it's against me right now. And that's when I died for you. Jesus came to seek and save the lost so what do we do? We surrender to him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, anyone who belongs to Christ Jesus has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. Matthew 5, 8, happy are the pure in heart for they will see God. Well, you're still going, okay, great. Well, how can I have a pure heart? Because when I look at all this stuff that's still going on in my life, I don't see, you know, a whole lot of purity going on. My mind is dirty. My hands are dirty. My mouth is dirty. Let me let you in on a little secret. You think you're the only one in the whole room who doesn't struggle with trials and tests and temptations, who doesn't have to push back against temptation, who doesn't fall and have to get on their knees and confess and run back to God once they've sinned. 
Every person in this room, we're all in the same boat. We've got to do it. Every person in this place, every person on this platform, we're all in the same boat. That we come back to Christ, we have to fight temptation, confess sin, and repent. It's part of the process. So what does your heart want? Do you want to see God? How about the second half of that? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You ever want to see God? You ever want to be like maybe down at the beach or up in the mountains and like the sky would part way and you'd be like, I can see you. You know, it'd just be like awesome, right? Just to check that out and see him. That'd be great. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, but that's not how God works. He's not like, let me just open the heavens and let you have a glimpse at me. The way God begins to reveal himself to you is that he wants you and I to be free. I think you and I want to have a pure heart. I think it's why you're here. I think on the inside, that's why you're here today. The fact that you're here today reveals that you would like for your heart to be pure. You would want for that to happen. The basis for a pure heart is not how good you've been, but how good God is. Grab a hold of that for a minute. The basis for a pure heart is not how good you've been. It's not based on your past performance or your present performance. It's based on how good God is. It's based on God's character, God's actions, God's goodness, not yours. Good behavior doesn't purify your heart, but a pure heart will change your behavior. So we submit ourselves, we commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ because it's God's goodness that changes us. Psalm 139 says this in verse 1, You have looked deep into my heart, Lord, and you know all about me. God knows that you really want to be free. God knows that you want to have things that are not right in your life be made right. God knows that you want somewhere deep down relationship with him to be restored and connected and real and authentic and not religious, but real. He knows that. He wants to build the character of Christ in you. And the only way that we do that is to surrender to him. He promises that if you and I surrender to him, he will purify your heart. He will do what we cannot on the inside. Then what happens? Then you and I, we will see God. See, we think we want to look and see him up in the heavens. God's saying, no, no, you're going to begin to see me in your life. I've given you a pure heart, and what's on the inside is going to begin to work its way out, and you're going to see me working in your life. You're going to see me in your hands. You're going to see me in your feet, in your mind, through your eyes, in your mouth, in the way that you live. You will see God. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You will see God changing your life. And so what do we do? We begin to cooperate. Okay, God, you're going to do that. It's going to be all by your power and your ability but now I'm going to cooperate with you, what you've already started, what you're already doing. And sometimes we go, God, I want to give you my life, and then we just don't cooperate with him, and we go, why has this faith not worked for me? Because you put a little faith in God, but you never participated with what he's doing. It's like, it's like your house saying, all right, I'm going to change myself. I'm going to have a building project go on in myself. I'm going to have a renovation on my house. I'm going to have a remodel going on. Your house says, I'm going to have a remodel but no one ever calls the contractors. Uh, you know, no one ever participates with anything. That's basically the idea. God's saying, no, I want more than that. I'm not just calling you to a place where you have a, an intention. I want to call you to a place where you're free. And God does it through other people. Just like if you were to do a remodel in your house, you would call contractors. You would go get supplies that you currently don't have in your garage right now. You might be rather handy. You're going to participate with it. You're going to participate with the building project. And God does that through his people. That's why he calls you and I into relationship with other people. Sometimes, though, it's tough to see, right? To see God working in your life. Do you ever realize like a man in love with a woman can see a beauty in her that sometimes she can't recognize in herself? And it's not just infatuation because really her friends who've known her and known her for a long time can see that value and that beauty in her too. But sometimes she looks at her own life and says, oh, I just can't see it. When I first met Heather, I began to watch her life and her character of her life, and we waited a long time. I didn't tell her I loved her for like, I don't know, like probably four months, and I was really, really sure that it wasn't just infatuation, that it was authentic, deep love. But I could watch her life, and here's what I saw. My wife had a horrible upbringing, a really, really rough background, and all these things that were like just like, you know, in her life, her life should have been like a stone cold. 
But I looked and I said that it's like that little grain of sand that was put into a, an oyster that it became an irritant. And God has since begun to take that rough background she's had and has begun to put a, a covering on it, a coat on it each time. And that little irritant, she has become like a beautiful pearl. And I, I basically told her this, I, you know, you're like a, a beautiful pearl set in a heart of gold. I went to Costco and I found an actual like heart of gold with a little pearl in it. Thought I was pretty unique, you know, that was pretty creative. You know, but really that was like a picture. That's how I saw Heather. And her friends would look and say the value, but what would she see? She'd see, but look at all the work that still needs to be done. And I know my hurts and my habits and my hangups. And look at this thing. And she just can't see it, right? Can you relate? An artist can look at a block of stone or some rough materials and say, I see beauty. I can see a work of art in those rough materials. A musician can look at random notes and arrangements and begin to dream and think and see harmonies that many of us couldn't. They can see what's there, and God sees that in you. God sees this is what I'm working in you and beginning in you and what I'm growing out of you, but it starts with a pure heart, and right now you can't see it. Because you just see the ways that you struggle, right? You and I experience trials and tests and temptation. God's going to begin to use trials and tests and temptations so that you and I grow. That we begin to take our faith and we develop a deep taproot like a tree that's going to grow huge. And so when the wind comes, it doesn't blow the tree over because it's got a huge taproot. Redwoods kind of hold on to each other and they have shallow roots. And if you get too much wind, big, huge, mighty redwoods fall over. But an oak tree, it's got a massive root that goes down. You can hardly get the thing to budge. And God's saying, I use trials and tests and temptations to make that root grow deep so that you grow. But what do we do? We look at trials and tests and temptations and we go, look how weak I am. God is testing me. He, he's just showing me once again how bad I behave. He is looking, and we take the trials and tests and temptations and we look at them as evidence of what we do not have, evidence of our weaknesses. But God begins to use trials and tests and temptations like a pumice stone is used on your foot after you've been wearing sandals all summer. And you got that nasty heel that wants to crack a little bit and it's scratchy on your bed sheets. God takes like the pumice stone and he's like going to use it. And guess what? He does that with trials and tests and temptations. He said, I want to take off those rough edges. You are a work of art and I'm working inside of you something that is beautiful. And you're going to reflect Jesus, who's already inside you. So what happens? If you and I fall down, we fail the test. We fail the temptation. We begin again. If we fall down again, we get back up and we begin again. That's what you do. If you screwed up this week, you're here today, you begin again. It's not an outward performance. It's a cooperation with what God's already doing inside of you. So you, this is where people come in. You need people around you to help you get up and begin again who love you, who love the Lord, who aren't there to judge you, but to help you get on the right path, to help redirect you. And you're there to help them to take those wrappings off and unbind them so you can be free. They can be free. You can be free to begin again, not under condemnation, but under freedom. And so what happens if we fall? We confess it to ourselves, to God, and to a trusted person. And we begin again. We move forward. Don't ever let sin keep you from God. But isn't that exactly what it does, right? You feel guilty. I sinned. I messed up, so I can't go to church. I, I can't go to community group. I can't read the Bible because maybe I'm going to even feel more guilty or something. I can't, I, you know, I can't look God in the eye because I know I've sinned. And, and what do we do? We just play into the devil's trap. He says, listen, when you've sinned, the devil wants to isolate you from the herd. Like you're a wildebeest running along with everybody. And the lions come along and they all of a sudden want to like get you off to the side. Why? Because now you're easy pickings. And so when you and I run from God, we begin to play into the devil's plan for our life. We get isolated. We get insecure. We begin to put on the mask again. We begin to wrap ourselves up with the things that entangle us and trip us up for our destruction. Jesus says, run to me. Sin should drive us to God. To whom else will we go? Who else has the words of life? Only you, God. Where else, where else am I going to get a pure heart? I can't do it for myself. I've got to run back to God. I've got to go to him. So when you sin, run to God. Did you sin yet? Run to him today. 
Are you going to send them a run back to God? When you sin, stop playing the blame game and stop playing the shame game and run back to God. Begin again. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we confess to ourselves that was sin, to God and to a trusted person so we can be healed. Now don't misunderstand me. God is not soft on sin. God is not so loving. He's not just, oh, I'm a loving God, that he stops becoming just. He is judge. He's the originator, the author of love. And those two are so desperately intertwined that God is not soft on sin. In fact, he said, I am so serious about sin that I will leave the comfort of heaven. I will come to earth. I will die on a cross, take your sin upon myself. I will be crucified because that's how serious sin is. But that's also how desperate I am that you and I would be restored in relationship where sin is separated. I love you that much. Picture for just a moment right now, you're in church. I want you to just picture for a minute that if Jesus were to walk up to you and just show you his hands, that you would reach out and touch the scars of where nails went through. He might pull up his shirt and show you his side where he got stuck with the spear. And he would just say, look, look how much I love you. Is sin serious? Oh, yeah, it is. But I want you to be free, just like I rose from the dead and am free from the grave. Not only did I cause Lazarus to rise from the dead, but Jesus Christ himself conquered death, rose to new life as God in heaven, conquering the power of sin and of death. He connects us back into relationship with him. So what are we supposed to do then when we've sinned? Lamentations 3.40, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Why? Why do we search our lives? When we take communion even, we're told to examine our lives. What are we examining our lives for? Why do we take a moral inventory? Why do we be honest with ourselves? Why? Because if I don't see the reality of the sin in my life, then I won't see the need of forgiveness. What happens? Our sin starts to become not a big deal. Those hurts, those habits, those hang-ups, those killer comforts, they start not to become a, they become more of the normal than becoming the reality that they're sin. And God is saying, examine your life. Understand, admit to yourself what that is, that sin. Confess it to me for forgiveness. And now confess it to someone else so that you may be healed if I don't see that I'm desperate for God's forgiveness, if I don't see how desperate the nature of sin separates in my life, then I won't see how much I need forgiveness. And so I need it. I need forgiveness. I think there's a second reason we examine ourselves. And that's because so much of what's happening in terms of our hurts and habits and hangups happened in the past. We need to look back and go, what's the source behind the behavior that I'm behaving? What's the source underneath that? So much of our behaviors are tied to poor choices we made in the past, poor beliefs that we've thought. And we need to be unwrapped from the things that are restricting us and holding us back from fullness of life, that there are hurts and habits and hang-ups that need to be healed, hurts that need to be healed, habits that need to be broken, hang-ups that need to be rewound so that we are able to relate in healthy ways. We've got to get over them. And God says, that's my whole agenda. Philippians chapter 2 says this, we work to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with a deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you and giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So what's happened? God's given us a pure heart, and now he's giving us the desire and power to please him. We work out what God is working in our lives. There's got to be a demonstration on the outside that God's doing something on the inside. And he wants that story told. He wants you to tell, here's my mess, but here's what God's doing on the inside. And he wants your story told. Why? Because somebody else might see it and go, if God could do that in you, maybe, just maybe, God could do that with me. If God could take your mess and make a message, maybe he could take mine and make a message out of me. Will you watch this video? I um, was 
raised in what I thought was a perfectly normal family. It was perfectly normal except that I was afraid of my dad because he would scream and yell and fly off at the handle. He pretty much lived in the garage working on his cars and on his hobbies and he was emotionally unavailable and so I um, made up for that by seeking the approval of my peers and boys in high school and then drugs and alcohol. One day um, in high school, right before a football game, my best friend handed me a compact with two white lines on it that happened to be crystal meth. And she said, here, snort this. And I, without question, snorted it. And that began my love affair uh, with crystal meth. For 15 years, I was a daily meth user. Every day before work, I was doing lines. I had it with me in my pocket. Um, I stole money to support my habit. I stole money from my grandmother, from my parents, from friends. After years of drug use and lying and stealing and no relationships and bad relationships, I'd finally had enough. I wanted more for my life. So I quit using. I left all of the people that I knew. I moved in with my grandmother and I started going to church. I fell in love with God. I fell in love with the Bible because I'd never read the Bible before. It was all of these fresh experiences and really nobody had ever loved me before. So here was this God, this father who was loving me. So I had this new life and I quit using drugs, but I had no recovery. There was no real healing there. What I did was I turned to food. I knew I wanted to be married and I knew I wanted a family, but I didn't know God well enough to know that I should ask him for it. So I set out on my own to find what I wanted. And I put an ad in um, the online personal ad thing. And that's how my husband and I met. So we met online and we got married in this random massive chaos. And it was one addict and a codependent marrying another addict. And it was the perfect storm. We didn't date, we just ate together. We ate our way up to I ate my way up to 365 pounds. So it was just a progression of when things were good, we ate. When things were bad, we ate. When it was happy, we celebrated with food. When we got together with friends, we cooked together and we ate together and that's all we did. So I have no church family. Um, my biological family is not speaking to me because they're not Christians and they don't believe in how I'm living my life. And so I just continued to eat because that was the only way that I knew how to make myself feel better. And one day um, I was eating fish tacos from Del Taco, three meals a day for four days in a row, and it wasn't a good enough hit for me anymore. And it was, that, was my, that was my crack, it was my heroin, it was my fix, and it wasn't good enough anymore. So I packed my kids up in the car and I drove 30 minutes down the road to another fast food restaurant to try to get another hit, another type of fish taco. And it may sound absurd, but to me, to the food addict, that's what I needed to make myself, to numb out. And I pulled over into an abandoned parking lot and I ate those fish tacos and my son was in the back seat and he said, mom, where's mine? And I didn't want to spend the money to get him his. And at that moment I thought, I'm like a heroin addict. This is no good. And that was my bottom. And so that was the night that I found a Celebrate Recovery at a local church. I went in fat and I went in angry and I went in devastated. And at that point I found um, a lady who was in another 12-step program who had lost a lot of weight. And um, I joined that other 12-step program and I lost 230 pounds. But that program, you weren't allowed to talk about Jesus. Over the course of two years, I lost all of that weight. I got down to a size two from a size 5X, and I lost Jesus. Uh, my husband and I were attending a local church, um, and that pastor asked us if we would consider, consider starting a Celebrate Recovery, and I thought, well, I've got all this recovery, I've lost all this weight, sure, I can do it. So I thought, if I'm gonna start the Celebrate Recovery, I should start attending a Celebrate Recovery. So that's when I found Celebrate Recovery at Sun Grove Church. God spoke to my heart, and he said, you need to leave that secular program. And I panicked. I thought, I can't do this without my program. And God said, yes, you can. So I left my secular program and all of 
my support and my health fell apart. I got colitis, my thyroid crashed, and in a year's time I've gained 140 pounds. But in that year's time I've learned to rely on God. I no longer eat addictively. I learned to trust God with my health, with my food. I learned that when I have feelings that I don't like to feel, that I go to God and I sit on my knees and I pray and I talk to him. I have friends that don't hand me lines of crystal meth and say, here, just do this. I have friends that um, call me and check in on me. I have friends that I can call for support and I had the opportunity to clean house again and clean up all of the wreckage from my past. So God does that. He begins this cutting work, this unwrapping in us, and he uses other people to do it. And when we isolate from other people, we're just not going to get there. And God uses others to do it. I mean, imagine, imagine for just a minute, if two years from now, you were able to let the story of your life look like somebody that you're not right now, that people who have known your mess would look and say, God has done something different. You're a different person. There's been healing that's going on. When you make the statement, I don't do that anymore, that you're making that statement not because you had some resolve, but rather because you have had some people come around you and God's healing presence in your life, and you really actually, because of what's going on on the inside, your behavior is reflecting it on the outside, and they begin to see that and go, wow, maybe something like that could happen with me. Imagine if in just one year, people who do not trust you right now, they don't trust you. You have violated trust. They don't believe it. They don't think that you're going to have any help, but they just think right now, I do not trust you. What if God began to come in and begin to heal your hurts, your habits, and hang-ups, and in just a year, people who do not trust you right now will begin to trust you again because of a radical shift, a radical change. But sometimes we just don't see God working in our lives. I have a friend who came to Christ recently, and I think a lot of you in this room have come to Christ recently that you've said yes to Jesus Christ and yes to his lordship in your life. And sometimes when we're, we've done that, we're so close, it's hard to see you. And I was talking to my friend that he came to Christ about a year ago, and he was just sharing like, just, you know, I was like so proud of him actually as he was talking, like just, wow, look at all the growth that's happened in just a year. But as he was talking, he just felt like, you know what, I just feel like God is just piling up stuff on me. What do you mean? Well, I just feel like he reveals one thing. As soon as he reveals one thing that's wrong with me, he shows me another thing that's wrong with me. And as soon as he shows me another thing that's wrong with me, it's like he's piling stuff up against me. And I had to say, no, 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 that's not, that's not the case. That's not you. He's not piling stuff up against you. He is taking stuff off of you. He's taking stuff away from you is what he's doing. He's basically saying, listen, you know that anger you have? Uh, let's deal with that. And he begins to pull that anger up. And then he goes, but listen, here's some reasons underneath here why you're angry. Here's the symptom to what's going on with you. And so he begins to pull this stuff off. He's like, let me take your load and let me pull it on myself so that you're free, so that you experience freedom in a new way. Wouldn't it be wonderful just to see God? You're going to see him as he's at work within you. God's not piling it up on you. He is taking it off. He doesn't want to load you down with guilt. He wants you to be free from guilt. He's here to set you free. We cannot heal a wound until we expose it and clean it out and cleanse it. It's never too late. Some of you are like, you don't know. You don't know all the bad stuff I've done, Dave. You don't know how awful I am. There's so much in me that God can never forgive me. Well, if, I, if that's you and your feeling of your heart, you've never read Jesus' words in the New Testament because he said, I came to seek and save the lost. In other words, the furthest out person, that's who I came to seek. Not the people who think that they're good or have it together. Not the religious. I came to seek the furthest away awful person. That's who I came to seek. God loves you that much. While you were his enemy, he died for you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, we cannot receive God's forgiveness until we admit how much we need him to forgive us. God isn't asking you to make a promise you can't keep. He's not asking you to say, hey, make a promise and then be disappointed with yourself later on. He's asking you to make a promise only he can keep. And God keeps his promises, and he won't lie. And he is God, 
and he cares about you and he wants to bring you into the deep wholeness that you're longing for. That's the pathway. Happy are the pure in heart. Why? For then you and I, we will see God. So let's stop and think, do you want a pure heart? Do you want one? Do you want to see God at work in your life and in your hobbies and your relationships and in your home? Do you want to see God's work, his building project in you? Are you going to participate with what God's doing with this building project that he wants to do on the inside of your life? Do you want freedom? Then you have to let the Lord set you free. Psalm 32, 5 said, finally, <laughs> so often it's finally, isn't it? Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And then James 5.16 in the Bible, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I know that this kind of honesty can be really scary for people. I know this kind of honesty is hard for you to be honest with yourself and with God and with one other person that you trust. I'm not denying that that's scary. But I want you to remember three things so that you and I are brave enough, we're courageous enough, we choose to do it. To pick up that phone, to make that phone call, to set an appointment, to go out with somebody, to sit down with a friend and be honest and peel back. Not partial honesty, peel it back. Show the real stuff to yourself, to God, and to another friend. But I want us to remember three things so we do it. We've got to remember, first of all, God's kindness. Romans 2.4, God's kindness leads you toward repentance. That's what it is. It's not God's judgment scares you enough to make you repent. It's his kindness that caused you to run back to me because I have the words of life. That's what Jesus said. And so we run back and we, we let our sin make us run back to God. It's his kindness. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've committed your whole life to Christ, there's no condemnation there. He takes your heart of stone. He makes it a heart of flesh. Romans 5.8, God has shown us how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. So we remember his kindness. He didn't have to. He chose to. He's so kind beyond what you can ask or imagine. He is so kind. We remember that. But we also remember God's faithfulness. Philippians 1.6, I am convinced that God, who began this good work in you, will carry it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God is not done with you yet. He's not so disappointed with you. He's not sidelined you. He's not cast you aside. He is doing a construction project with you saying, will you, will you cooperate with me and with the people I bring along to help work on your life? Or are you going to be like the house that's like, no, I'm not going to let you tear my wall down. I'm not going to let you begin to work on me. I'm not going to let you put something in new where there's something really old that I've grown attached to. Maybe it's got dry rot in it. God says, I'm bringing a crew. Will you work with them? Yes, I will. Because, God, you're faithful to complete what you started. One of my favorite verses, Romans 8, 38, it goes into 39, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is where? That's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not addictions, not hang-ups, not habits, not personal problems or past hurts. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And so we be honest with ourselves. Hebrews 13, 5, God says, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Other people may leave you. Other people have left you. Other people have abandoned you. But God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He's not ashamed of you. So we remember God's kindness. We remember his faithfulness. And third, we remember God's promises if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart. I'll take out that like heart of stone. Take that out of you. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that what you want, God? Take my hardened heart, the one that sometimes just doesn't care. Take that out of me, that heart of stone, and give me a heart of flesh that's beating and life-giving. Make me soft on the inside. Take that grain of sand that's been an irritant and put, that, the, put over it the covering that produces a beautiful pearl in a heart of gold that you have changed, that you've given me a new heart and a new spirit. 
2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For it is Christ who is the yes of all God's promises. Today, we're going to take courage. Today, we realize God is at work in you. He wants to work in your hurts and your habits and your hangups. He loves you. He started this process. He already sees you right now as having a pure heart. He's got you in the process of becoming who you are. You don't have to be afraid, so follow him into it. Participate with what he's doing in you and make the house cleaning choice that you confess to yourself, to God, and to one other person what's really going on. But that doesn't start without first submitting your life to Christ. And some of you are in this room right now and realizing you need to do that. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I'm only asking you to do that so that you're not disturbing anybody around you and so that you're evaluating your own life. But I want you to think for a minute, are you ready today to say yes to Jesus? Will it not, do you feel like it, but are you ready? Are you willing to make that choice to submit your heart and your will to the care and control of Jesus Christ? Do you realize that he died for your sin and he wants to give you a new heart. If that's you today, then pray a prayer to him right where you're sitting in your seat. He will hear you. If you pray it quietly on the inside in your heart, he hears you. He knows you so intimately. He's been drawing you already. But you just pray a prayer like this after me. Jesus, today I say yes to you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to come into my heart. Take my heart of stone and all my mess. And give me a heart of flesh. God, give me a pure heart. I can't do it on my own. So I ask you to come into my life and have relationship with me. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that right where you were and just meant it, would you just slip up your hand? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, but just raise up your hand. Anywhere around the room, we've got some people who'd like to give you some information. So when you got your hand up, we just want to let you know they're going to come up to you and just hand you something. Greatest decision you could ever make. Anywhere else around the room, just hold your hand up high so that any one of our ushers could just be able to give you some of this information. Awesome. It's the greatest decision you could ever make. Believers in the room, I want you just in the same time of reflecting. You've asked God to give you a new heart. He sees you right now as having a pure heart. He wants you to cooperate with what he's doing. But he's asking you to be honest with one other person. And what I'm asking you to do right now is to go ahead and, uh, go ahead and write down a name of one person that you would talk to this week. You confess to God. You confess to yourself, and you confess to one other person what's going on, your hurts, your habits, your hang-ups. You name them. You bring them out of the darkness. You bring them into the light, but you're going to set up coffee with somebody. You're going to talk to somebody. You're going to pray with a prayer uh, person up front. You're going to do what you need to do, but this week you're going to do that. So believers, ask God's Holy Spirit. He'll reveal to you who it ought to be. God, who should I talk to this week, and will you make the house-cleaning choice? It doesn't get clean. And you don't get healthy and free until you talk to somebody else about it. You write down that name. You pray about it and listen to the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.